Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Dr. Eleanor Yaniger, who none other than Dan Snow refers to as the most awesome medieval historian in the world, which is perhaps her, her greatest claim to fame. She's also <laughs> a guest lecturer at LSE in the Department of International History, and she's published all sorts of articles, which you may or may not find interesting, like Suspect Women, Prostitution, Reputation and Gossip in 14th Century Prague, or Lies, Damn Lies and Bohemians in History Today. She has a PhD in history. She has an excellent blog called Going Medieval, and you can find her online at patreon.com forward slash going medieval. So without further ado, Helena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Guy. It's such a delight to be here. Well, thank you. Now, uh, just so we can orient ourselves, whereabouts are you at the moment? So I am in uh, the great city of London, um, although I am south of the river. So technically, for medieval purposes, I would not be within the city limits. But uh, things being as they are, I count at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, am I right in thinking you came over here from Chicago? Um, yes. So I am originally, originally from Seattle. I did uh, undergraduate work in Chicago. And uh, then I moved over here when it became clear that I was going to become a European medieval historian uh, because this is where we tend to keep it. So yes. <laughs> I thought it would make my life easier if I could actually be around the documents. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the arms and armor and, and artifacts that we find interesting have been bought by Americans and taken over, overseas. That is but unfortunately the case. <laughs> yes. Although, although actually for us, um, many of the most important manuscripts for us are actually in America, which is very frustrating. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, Okay, so as you said, you're a medieval historian. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a dream job for many of my students. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that come about? So um, I was just uh, your average undergraduate um, history major. Um, and I was at Loyola University of Chicago, which has an extraordinarily strong medieval program. And I had no idea that this is what I wanted to specialize in. Um, I actually went in um, a dedicated Sinophile and uh, extremely interested in Chinese history in particular. Okay. Um, and then I was swayed. I was swayed and misled uh, by a number of uh, wonderful medieval historians there, um, including um, the great Barbara Rosenwine, who is um, very celebrated. Uh, she came up with the conception of medieval communities, which is something that we use. Uh, Teresa Grosdiez, who is an absolutely fantastic um, French medieval historian. Um, and basically, when you're just around um, a lot of people who are doing incredible work, it's sort of infectious. Um, yes. And so, oh gosh, also um, Alan Franson, I have to mention as well, who does a lot of um, incredible work within the department. So uh, one thing kind of led to another. Um, I moved to Prague for a while. Um, then I got really swayed the wrong way. And I basically thought, well, what if uh, I kind of modeled my entire life around being a giant nerd about 14th century Prague? And uh, that's how I kind of ended up yeah. here. Uh, I, I visited Prague and it, it has a certain medieval vibe to it, for sure. It certainly does. Yes. So uh, so, so why not Prague? Why London? Um, well, part of it is just about uh, speaking English. And also part of it is about uh, just being able to have um, access to a lot of different documents and a lot of different like flights to places, to be honest. Um, All right. It's easier for me um, at the minute to be in London, although um, it's always on the cards. I'm always like on the verge of just moving to the Czech Republic <laughs> so, again. So, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where um, it really depends. I go over an awful lot for research um, because a lot 
of my research uh, hinges on things that are in the Narodny Knihovna um, or the Czech National Library. But uh, having said that, the British Library is just an absolute trove of uh, manuscripts. So having access to that is kind of um, amazing. So what are your main research interests? If we found you in the British Library mm-hmm. collections, what would you be looking at? So um, I am a social historian, uh, primarily, and I am a late medievalist. So I'm kind of covering the 13th century up to about the 16th. Um, and I am interested in um, apocalypticism, uh, sexualities, uh, cities, propaganda, um, and kind of things like, um, I'm really interested in various heretical movements, this sort of a thing. Basically, uh, my joke is that I'm interested in sex and death, uh, because <laughs> nothing else really matters. So, um, I, I work on all of those things, but, you know, obviously what I'm kind of trying to do is construct a generalized, um, conception of what society sort of looks like. Um, in the late medieval Europe, generally, um, you know, Holy Roman Empire more specifically, but late medieval Europe generally. And, you know, it helps us to kind of explain our world if we understand how it is that uh, the social fabric was knitted together before we got to the modern period, I think. Excellent. Now, I know that quite a few of the people listening will be doing martial arts from uh, late 14th and 15th century Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So, Would you care to kind of, I know it's tough on a podcast, but kind of summarize your view of how society was working back then? Okay, so. (laughs) Where where swords fitted into that? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Okay, well, that's fine. Uh, Just do that in a couple minutes, shall I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. right. (laughs) Ten years work in a a five-minute soundbite. Go. So, um, you know, I know that, um, as most of your listeners are going to know, that, um, you know, the Holy Roman Empire is one of these great, great examples of where you get a lot of the fantastic manuscripts in particular um, that let us know how people were actually fighting. Um, And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the late medieval period and when we consider martial arts is that it is actually a time when we get to begin to learn the actual mechanics about fighting. Because up until that point, you know, we have a lot of things about, you know, who went to war with whom, you have a lot of kind of hyperbole, you know, and, you know, stories about arrows going through eyes and, you know, clover chopping off someone's head with an axe and this sort of thing. But, you know, one doesn't necessarily know how people were individually going about it. So, of course, um, in and of itself, you know, how people fight, if you really want to know more about that, you have to go to the late medieval period. But one of the things about swords generally and fighting generally that interests me is it is particularly kind of classed to a certain discre- um, extent, you know, Absolutely. obviously. Um, and what I'm I'm really interested in um, differences between uh, classes in the medieval period and how we define various social groups. So obviously, like just the opportunity to have a sword tells you a lot about a person, you know, who is literally allowed to walk around <laughs> with a sword is a really big deal, you know, because um, so you'll have, for example, stories from uh, the Hussite rebellions in Prague in the 15th century. And you'll see, uh, you know, city guards and that sort of thing who are defending with stuff like rocks and sticks, you know, <laughs> be up on a wall just being like, I don't know, throw rocks at them. This is what we've got going, you know, which tells you a lot about like who's on the side of the Hussites and, you know, versus, you know, people on horseback who have really nice horses, uh, really nice horses, really nice swords. And that tells you a lot about 
who um, is thinks what about religion, how these things are defended and fought for physically. And so you can never really get that far from swords and who has them if one of the things that you want to talk about um, is the stratification of society. Uh, because swords are this definitive symbol of who gets to fight and how. Um, of course, there's lots of different ways um, of fighting, you know, and archers are something that I'm always um, really obsessed with for the same reason, uh, because I love the kind of um, communal aspects of archery in the late medieval period, how it's kind of like a way of socializing for uh, people in towns and that kind of thing. Uh, archery practice. Um, oh, big shout out. I spent a bunch of time the other week uh, playing with online. There's a zoomable map of, it's called the August map of uh, London. It's not actually made by the guy August um, who, who thought it was made, but it's a 17th century map of London. And if you look at all the outskirts um, of the city, you see a bunch of people practicing archery. So it's got a map of town, but it shows you what people are kind of doing for their, in their not necessarily spare time, but you know, you see a bunch of people doing laundry, you see a bunch of people walking dogs and you see people practicing archery. Um, And I think that's such, you know, just a great example of how martial arts are this really everyday part of life, but also a really pleasurable part of life for people. Um, You know, I lived in, I lived in Tokyo for a while as a modern example. And one of the, you know, great pleasures was to go to the parks on Sundays and everyone would be out there doing kendo or practicing kudo. So they've got like their giant bows and they've got their swords and they're, they're out there just like having a lovely time hitting each other with swords. And, uh, you know, it it really kind of hammered this home for me that the fact that this is, you know, obviously a very practical thing, a way of organizing the world. Um, and it's a skill, but it's also a form of pleasure. And I think that's something that we really overlook because we tend to just say, Oh, you know, wars are fought in this way. Uh, fighting happens in this way, but there's also, you know, this instinctual kind of hook into the pleasure of uh, really gaining mastery over something. Um, and I'm really interested in that. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm thinking of Philip Ovadi, who in the 1480s wrote a lovely little book and he explicitly says that the art is uh, for, you know, Kings and nobles and knights and not for mm-hmm. peasants who are yep. fit only to carry heavy loads. The fact that he felt it necessary to say that mm-hmm. would suggest that perhaps there were peasants who were thinking about picking up swords. Absolutely. So um, I think you are referring to De Arti Gladiatori Dominican Candi. No, oh, well yes. done you so, knowing that. <laughs> hey, I know things. I know things. Um, so, and, and yeah, yes, it's true. And it's... Um, it is one of those. It is one of those things where it's like it's so explicit. You know, sometimes, um, often when you're speaking to people uh, about the medieval period, they don't kind of realize how um, incredibly restricted the ability to fight with a sword is. Um, you know, they, because the way that we tend to think about the medieval period is in this uh, sort of fantasy uh, way. You know, the major way that most of us relate to it is through what we refer to as medievalisms. So stuff like uh, Lord of the Rings or um, Game of Thrones. You know, when people say, oh, well, this is what uh, the world was like. And it's based on these kind of depictions of, you know, the knightly class, of nobles, of people who certainly did have swords. And, you know, it's one of those things that you'll talk to people and they'll be like, oh, yeah, well, people were just carrying around swords, you know, hacking at each other is something that has been said to me. And it's like, well, no. Um, (laughs) You know, and people sometimes and when they get quite romantic about uh, medieval swordplay. They will tend to say, oh, well, it's this great thing that everyone was involved in. It's like, well, no, you, you, you know, 90% of, uh, sorry, 80% of the population um, of medieval Europe were peasants. And they had absolutely no recourse to swords and would get massive trouble if that was something that they took upon themselves. And you can tell, though, when Philip Avati is talking about this, that this seems to be something that's softening up 
You know, so his the his feeling that he needs to underline the fact that peasants aren't fit to pick up swords kind of tells you that things are changing, because if it's just a self obvious thing, a lot of the time it's never mentioned, and exactly. it's when you you get uh, hints like that, that's when you sh- it shows us that things are becoming a little bit more mobile, uh, things are becoming a little bit more shaken up, and uh, you know, you, there also is a lot of tension going on at the time because of stuff uh, like. Uh, you know, Italy, the Italian city-states had kind of come through um, a period of massive war at the end of the 14th century. You know, you have things like um, the Roman Republic, um, you know, you had lots of civil wars. And currently, um, when Vilbavati is writing, you've got the Hussite Wars going on. So there's a lot of noble tension about, mm, you know, peasants getting a little bit uppity and deciding that they can do things uh, using martial arts. And so there is there is a real tension there that he's kind of direct, he is directly talking about. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a very uh, interesting and comprehensive answer. Thank you. Um, okay. Now, I need to like throw something that's potentially a little triggering at you, so brace yourself. <laughs> okay. Um, in, in sword circles, we are well aware that in the 19th century, the fencing master and historian of fencing called Egerton Castle mm. famously dismissed the rough, untutored fighting of the Middle Ages. Okay. <laughs> well, to be super fair to Castle, he wasn't probably aware of the manuscripts that we're working from today. Mm-hmm. Was, as far as he could probably see, the fencing record began in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. So he would probably assume that before that there was nothing and then suddenly, you know... Wait, also, he wasn't a trained historian in the modern sense at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we now know, of course, that medieval martial arts are sophisticated and elegant and so on. Mm. Um, in your article, Lies, Damn Lies and Bohemians, you call into question, I quote, the modern belief that the Middle Ages was a time of ignorance and superstition. Mm-hmm. So what was it like and how do you know? Ah, yes. So this is one of those things. So it, this gets right to the heart of one of my uh, personal bugbears. So, you know, you, you yeah, well you, done on finding the thing that bothers me the most in the world. Um, so there is um, particularly a modern conception that it's really tied with um, the Enlightenment. Um, and there is a specific thing within the Enlightenment and a tendency to say, um, and I'm afraid Voltaire is to blame for this, um, that the medieval period in general in, is a backward time. Um, it's a time when there was no sophisticated anything happening, whether that be thought or uh, societal you know, cohesion, or you know, it can extend to warfare as well. So nothing that happened in the medieval, medieval period was uh, interesting or, or you know, worth your time. And there are a few reasons for this. One of it is a modern tendency to pat ourselves on the back for being so very clever. Um, yes, everybody, everybody really likes uh, to believe that, you know, we are kind of um, uh, standing at the, the top of a pyramid that and that we know more than everyone else. And the medieval period is sort of looked upon as a time when that was not, in fact, happening. Um, that is kind of fed into by uh, a tendency to look down upon religious people at this juncture. Um, so there is this consideration because especially within medieval Europe, everyone is, um, almost everyone is Christian. You know, obviously there are huge Jewish populations. There's huge uh, Muslim populations in places like Sicily and what is now Spain. Uh, but you're looking at a bunch of very Christian people who um, are very devout believers in God. And that in and of itself is something that people take to mean that there's no kind of uh, good thinking going on. 
Um, there's no and so you can't possibly be both a Christian and uh, be doing any kind of thought that's work- worthwhile, which is hilarious because you know there are absolutely stunning geniuses around the shop, like you know Thomas Aquinas or um, Hildegard of Bingen, or you know I could just throw out names all day long of these people who you know I'm not fit to carry bathwater for, um, and they have much more sophisticated ways of looking at the world. But um, there is this kind of knock-on effect there. So, you know, even if it's not just something like intellectual thought that we're talking about, it will be things like warfare. Because, you know, um, I'm sure that you've kind of heard about uh, the conception of the military revolution as well, um, which is something that people really like. uh, And people really like it because they like the fact that there are certain tactics that are gone back to that are seen as being more Roman because part and parcel with this belief that nothing good is happening in the Middle Ages um, is this lionization of and aggrandizement of um, Romans. Uh, in particular. Uh, We do this for a couple of reasons. Um, In the first place, we like empires because we have empires. Um, And so we like to find them other places. And and we say, oh, you know, you can tell that a society is good and um, a society is um, advanced if they've got a standing army, they're taking over other places (laughs) hostily, and they're extorting wealth out of them. You know, that's how you can tell that people really have themselves together. Um, And the Romans are doing that, right? So people like to say, okay, Romans good because they're like us. 1100 years of question marks that you just don't need to look into very deeply. Uh, The Renaissance, us, fantastic, you know. Um, And so part of that is saying, oh, you can buy into uh, the military revolution standpoint where you have um, going back to Roman tactics and techniques um, and, you know, taxation to have standing armies. And that also tells you that also martial arts are better the minute that you have that and that anything before that that's happening on a small scale is bad. Um, And that is all just kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that allows people to be really lazy. Um, It allows us to be self-congratulatory, say, oh, we're so much smarter than these people, and we understand fighting better than these people, and we're more elegant than these people. Um, And it also means that you don't have to go around learning stuff like Latin and a bunch of other languages, and you don't have to squint and learn paleography and check out, uh, you know, from the 14th century or anything like that you know yeah, you can who would want to do that right yeah exactly oh it'd be terrible you know so you if you just write it off and say well this is all barbaric you never have to look into it um and it allows you to kind of keep your own idea of how the world is which is you at the top of it um without ever having to do any heavy lifting so, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's kind of a vicious cycle because people like doing it because it makes themselves feel good and because they feel good about it, they never look into it. So, you know, a lot of the time when you're speaking, I'm sure you're aware of this, you know, when you speak to people about uh, the medieval period, um, they are sure that it's, you know, five people rolling around in the dirt, uh, praying to God, um, having the plague and, you know, occasionally getting on horseback. And they think that that's, you know, what 1100 years of history is. Um, when, in fact, one of the reasons <laughs> yeah. we're not taught about it and we don't learn about it is that you know it's massively complicated you know you can't really sit down um with you know say 12 year olds in school and say okay well here we go we're doing medieval europe because everything is so intricate very many different places have very many different cultures um although that's not necessarily true about late medieval fighting because you know we know a lot of it's coming out of um, the german lands and that sort of thing so you know the italians be the first to tell you that but um you know, we, we do kind of have a an, an actual rich opportunity if we pay more attention to uh, martial arts manuals and things to see where the common and overlying uh, cultures are. And one of those is among, you know, the elite who get to do sword fighting because sure. there are definitive, there is this definitive way that they can come together. And so um, 
it in and of itself, ironically, would allow people who don't really want to do the work of medieval (laughs) medieval, uh, history to kind of like have a really easy um, cultural thing to have a look at. So it's a shame when you see it written off like that, but it comes from our baser, you know, uh, wishes to pat ourselves on the back. But it's also not necessarily our fault because um, the Enlightenment was a hell of a time. And, uh, you know, it, it was very important for a lot of things. It gave us a lot of great things, but it also gave us a lot of um, a lot of excuses to get out of doing the homework, I'm afraid. Yeah. So would, would you say that sort of the knightly classes of late medieval Europe were sort of like a subculture to mm. themselves? Yeah, I would certainly say so. Mm. I mean, and I think that... Um, so, you know, for example, um, I'm sure that you're aware of uh, Fiora de Libri's um, Flos Dilatorum. Are no? you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, you're aware. No, yeah, exactly. That's, 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 that's the one thing I'm perhaps most known for being aware of. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, so, I've, I've heard of Fiora. Um, so, you know, it it is this wonderful example because, you know, it. we start off right now, now learning that actually what Fiora is learning, writing down now, he learned from um, a Swabian. Uh, Master your uh, Hang on. Yeah, no, but learned from very. He learned from many teachers. Many teachers, both right. Italian and German. Yeah. So he's putting. He mentions Johannes the Swabian. And so he mentions him by name, right? So yeah. that's not the only one, but you know, this is the one where yeah. we're going to put the name out here. And one of the reasons why you do that, why you put just the one name out when it's actually, you know, like a, it's a community effort. No one mm-hmm. learns from one person, right? right. Um. But why you do that is to kind of hook yourself into a really obvious lineage. So, you know, he he is using that as a way of saying, okay, like, I know, like, here's a here's a guy's name that I'm sure you all know. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, Master Johannes. Yeah, 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 definitely. We know that. So what that has the effect of doing is saying that Fiore knows what he's talking about. Um, it also means that every other technique that he might have got from anyone else now also gets that seal of approval. And what we're seeing here is kind of a coalescing where you can learn a lot of different little things from a lot of different people, but you stamp it with, you know, it's a very medieval thing to do, um, is kind of stamp a name on it. Um, you know, you will see this, for example, in um, lots of philosophical treatises um, in the medieval period where, you, you know, the ground is absolutely littered with pseudo philosophers, right? Where people will, it will have pseudo Albertus Magnus, or will you know will have pseudo Terulian, this sort of thing. So it'll be a whole new uh, kind of a philosophy or medical text or that sort of thing. But the way that you get everyone to agree, oh, this is very good, is by putting a name that everyone knows on it, right? So what Fiore is doing here is just like he's turning on that little neon light, you know, saying, hey, you've heard of the guy, and medieval people are like, ah, oh, yes, they they love authority, you know. Yeah, the appeal to authority is like. Yeah, it's, that is absolutely the thing that they love. Um, and so I think it's so great when you see things like that because it's very clear that in the first place, they're kind of like taking things from, uh, you know, the philosophical community, the um, the uh, intellectuals of the time. And they're saying, you know, these sort of same things can be applied to martial arts. So, you know, it's when you, you see a kind of like a light bulb moment where it's like, you know, actually, we should get this on paper. You know, it shouldn't just be about um, you have to kind of like go and show up um, at someone's house and learn how to fight, which we know is a thing that people do. Yeah. But so, um, so this, this brings up a perhaps a, a sidetrack for you. Um, one of the mysteries is why in the 14th century we begin to see martial arts presented in text, starting with 133 in the maybe 1340s, I think it's the most recent dating for mm, it. Mm. Um, Fiore's writing at the end of the 14th century. We mm-hmm. have at least one German source that might be from 
around 1389 ish. And then sort of the German treatise, martial arts treatise tradition sort of kicks off in the 15th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think drove that development? I mean, I think that one of the things that we're seeing there is we're seeing a higher degree of literacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, um, you know, it's one of these things that I think is quite fun is that you still do see, you know, um, you, you begin to see uh, more literacy in the vernacular uh, as opposed to simply in Latin, um, which a lot of the time you that is, you know, obviously, you know, you see you see more things in vernacular languages and not necessarily um, Latinate uh, manuscripts, although there are plenty of Latinate uh, manuscripts as well. Um, and that kind of has, I think, the. Um, there is a traditional kind of medieval thing where when you're writing things in vernacular languages, it tends to be more about people's day-to-day life. So, you know, uh, things like uh, kind of like courtly love literature, a lot of the time is written in French. You know, you've got Chaucer writing in English, um, you know, when he wants to tell body stories, you know, so things that, you know, an average person are kind of interested in that you can sort of learn from, this is beginning to get into the vernacular and people enjoy reading in the vernacular. It's, it, you know, it's kind of like, I think it's sort of part and parcel. And so, you know, people who would, who are definitely from a kind of background where they have the means to be um, literate, uh, but maybe they don't want to be a priest and they don't want to work that hard at their Latin, you know, because they want, they want to be outside hitting each other with swords, you know, like all, all the interesting people. So, you know, if you offer people an opportunity to do this in their own language, they go, Oh, Hey, that's, that's a lot easier for me. Um, Although although, do you think that, for example, um, Fiore Battaglia was actually written for people just to read, or was it written? See, I have uh, I'm a little suspicious of that because he explicitly says in the yeah. introduction that his art is taught in secret, and people who he teaches the art to are sworn to secrecy. Mm, yeah, I mean that's the thing is that I don't think I I, don't, I wouldn't say that Fiore um, is just doing it kind of for you know. Okay, so he's so he's such a complicated person. <laughs> so you know, I think there, uh, to a certain extent, what we're doing is seeing it's like, well, yeah, okay, so things are kind of like a taught in in secrecy. And one of the things about doing things like this, you know, manuals like this that you can hand person to person, is it's like, okay, well, this is the expansion of knowledge. This is in one way recording what it is that you're doing. Um, yeah. It's a way of passing things through things, but it's still does have that um, kind of secret thing. So this is going to keep the commons out, isn't it? You know, anything written down that you have to read uh, is automatically going to be kind of aimed at um, a higher class of people. Um, So you have the kind of secrecy there. Uh, But it's just, it's so... You know, I wish that I had an answer for this. I wish I was the person who was going to crack this thing wide open. But the the best questions are the ones that don't have simple answers. You know, all I could, you know, we could, I could talk about this for hours and I'll just say on the one hand, but on the other hand, so it is one of those things where I I see that we're simultaneously seeing an opening up of these things. Um, But we have to also keep in mind that while you and I say, uh, you know, and I just did say um, that when things are in the vernacular, it reaches a wider group of people. It's like, yeah, but what do we mean by that? A very wide group yeah, of people, yeah, it's like and, it, and instructive that that one thirty three is actually written in Latin. Mm-hmm. So there is the, the earliest um, manuscript we have on sword fighting is written in Latin. It yeah. comes from somewhere in Germany, southern Germany. I yeah, think. this is the Walpurgis manuscript, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, um, and that 
and that kind of makes perfect sense, right? Because it's so early that, you know, you would sort of expect to see it more in um, Latin, you know, and it's, and then we kind of like get out of that as we, we move further along, which makes sense. Um, but I do see, I do see it as one of these things where, you know, to a certain extent, um, while Latin, you know, I will never be done extolling the virtues of Latin as a language. You know, I think, <laughs> I think it's great that it's nobody's, you know, I like, yeah, I like yeah. the fact that it's just this language that sort of existed for communicating ideas when no one spoke it. lingua franca. Yeah. And I think that that's really great. Um, you know, although as an English speaker, I'm doing just fine now with, sure. <laughs> with yeah, exactly what right. it is that we're using. Um, but it, it still is an impediment to a certain extent. Um, you know, most people are going to have at least church Latin. You know, they're going to know how to say the Our Father in Latin and that sort of thing. But it isn't necessarily what you're going to want to sit down and crack um, when you're actually trying to learn a practical method of anything. You know, because a practicality and Latin don't necessarily go hand in hand Um in a lot of people's imaginations uh, within the medieval period. So it depends on what you're trying to do. It depends on what sort of audience you're trying to reach uh, with the words that you use and the language that you use. Um, And I do think that the kind of explosion there is tied to that. But I also do think that um, it's kind of tied with the fact that uh, people kind of have a little bit more leisure time um, often in the later medieval period, uh, there, you know, the 14th century was a particularly hard one. There were a lot of harvest failures and that sort of thing. Uh, we kind of come back from that a bit uh, in the 15th century, although, you know, that's not always true. Uh, people in the Italian city-states have a hell of a time <laughs> in, the, in the, you know, the, the late medieval period as well. Um, but you do kind of see an interest specifically in um, – bibliographic culture, you know, people being more interested in stuff like guidebooks, um, more in be that for travel or for practical things like medicine or martial arts. You do see a kind of expansion of books about more general interest things. Uh, Oh, sure. And many of these German sources are, we find them in compilations, which include things like medicine and fireworks and all sorts of other things. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, here's a, this, do you find this interesting? Are you interested in, in fireworks? I am. Are you interested in medicine? I, uh, you know, and so you see these great compendia and that's one of the things that I actually really love about medieval manuscripts is you see people kind of just put things in as and when they find them interesting. Right. So it's a really great way of saying, oh, okay, well, what what are, you know, people's interests? How are they kind of feeling about things day to day? What are they? If they could put together um, a book about anything that they were interested in, what do they do? Because they literally do that, you know. Um, yeah. And it's uh, one of the downsides for, you know, a lot of the time our surviving martial manuscripts are these beautiful things, you know, absolutely gorgeous Um you know, you'll see wonderful decorations, you know, they're, they're extremely lavish. And obviously I love those. Um, I'm an absolute, you know, mess for anyone who has an illuminated manuscript of anything, but that's also not necessarily the average manuscript in the medieval period. You know, the average one is kind of tiny and little and people are carrying it around. And so a lot of the time we have to keep in mind that the manuscripts that we are left with were left with because they were so remarkable and people right. go, Oh, well that's really, that's precious. You the know, same with a lot of the swords. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you have the most remarkable sword. You have the most remarkable manuscript because people say, Oh, well, don't, don't burn that. Don't get rid of that. We're going to want that one. Or don't scrape the ink off and write something, I don't know about herbalism or something over it. Yeah, exactly. Don't reuse that. Don't, don't turn that into a book binding for 
another book. Uh, <laughs> you know, when the um, monasteries are dissolved or the libraries consolidated like they are in the 17th century, uh, don't get rid of those ones. Move those into the monastery, you know, the, out of the monastery and into the state uh, library. Those are very beautiful. You know, So yeah. there are numbers of reasons why we lose uh, medieval texts all the time. And one of them is that they're just not, you know, I don't necessarily keep all my phone bills, you know, for example. It's sure. just, if things are dull, you don't necessarily keep good records of it. And when things are beautiful and extravagant, you do. Um, and so we know more um, about martial arts from those texts. But that's true of almost any anything that you're talking about in the medieval period. It's going to be the special things that kind of uh, survive, which can be a shame if you're looking for evidence of um, ordinary people. But, you know, when we're talking about sword fighting, we're never really talking about ordinary people, are we? So, you know, it's fine. Fair enough. Um, now, many of the listeners are interested in studying medieval martial arts from medieval sources, mm -hmm. and they don't often get access to a professional medieval historian. So mm. um, can I can I bug you for some advice for the someone who is, you know, they have, they've, they've bought a copy of one of these books, and they want to start figuring out how the martial arts work from them. From your perspective as a historian, what, what would you tell them to do? Um, so there, if you're going to learn from these manuals, which is certainly a thing that can be done, um, one of the things, I hope so. <laughs> I know, one of the things you kind of want to get uh, your head around is uh, the way that medieval people introduce things, you know? So when we kind of think of a guidebook, we, we sort of think of things being like, oh, step one, step two, step three, um, medieval people, uh, you know, a good way of putting this is, you know, if, when you read sort of like 19th century or 18th century novels, you know how something like Moby Dick will be like, here's a chapter of plot, here's an essay, here's a chapter yeah. of plot, here's an essay. It's helpful if you kind of think of medieval works like that, where, you know, you'll have some real practical advice and then, you know, you will have a philosophical kind of a way of bringing this together and then they will tell you um how this fits in with christianity and that sort of thing you know um don't let that put you off um but also you need to decide what it is that you're trying to do when you read these books so um do you want to read it all in order and get an overall kind of idea of what they're saying or are you looking for kind of like practical step-by-step -step things there's absolutely no shame if you're using this as a manual and you just want the step-by-step -step. feel free to skip ahead Feels free to skip around. You don't need to like read every kind of uh, philosophical um, idea. You don't need to get really bogged down to the fact that, uh, you know, they love etymology. Um, and you will have these huge digressions about how you get a particular word. Um, and they will, you know, kind of like work back and they'll say, and that is why you, a manacle is called this. And you're like, great, I've just lost, you know, 20 minutes of my life. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily need to be um, interested in that. But one thing that I tend to do with manuscripts, um, if I'm really trying to come to terms with them, I will often commit myself to at least two readings of something. And I'll say, okay, I'm going to read the whole thing as it's meant to be read, you know, taking notes of the things that I actually find useful. And then I will go back and then read the useful bits again. Once I've kind of got the gist of it, once I've got an idea of what it is the author is trying to uh, get across to me, I can then go in and pick out the things that are useful to me. Um, and there's absolutely no shame in that. And it's honest to God, most historians, you know, when we are presented with a document, we're going in and looking for the thing that proves us right. So, <laughs> you know, we're kind well, of... That, that is a very refreshingly honest take on it. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll go and we'll go skim, 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 skim. Oh, there's a word that I'm looking for. Great. What does that have to say? Uh, you know, skim, skim, skim. You are allowed to do that that you know you don't have to um 
you are someone who wants to use a sword manual to learn how to sword fight. So go do that. Don't worry about, you know, becoming the world's foremost expert on this particular manuscript or this particular book. What you want to do is uh, learn how to apply that to your life. And it's not the way that we think about books now. Um, so don't burden yourself by bringing a 21st under century understanding of books into it. Like allow yourself to skip around, allow yourself to not read, allow yourself to skim, and you'll actually have a more comprehensive idea of it as a manual if you do that, I think. Interesting. Okay. That, that, that's, um, I, I have a couple of colleagues who I know are going to be jumping up and down going, no, no, I don't. Well, you know, Hey, so I think, I think it's really interesting because, you know, as a historian, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but I think that, um, if what you're, what you want to do is fight, then fight baby. You know, <laughs> Come on. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Well, you, you've heard it. You heard it from, from the authority herself, chaps. You can just fight. You don't have to worry about all this book learning nonsense. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay. Now I, I have experienced um, secondhand your glorious rant about the notion of the dark ages. And um, uh. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the thing is, the thing is in, a, in what we think of as the dark ages or what is commonly called the dark ages, there aren't, there isn't anything in the way of actual sword fighting sources, mm. but I do have many friends and colleagues who are nonetheless trying to recreate mm. the fighting arts, given the equipment that they've got and given, you know, so they know what the armor was like. They know what the swords were like, mm-hmm. they figure out how they would kill each other wearing these, wearing these, this armor and using these, these weapons. Mm. Um, but we have been indoctrinated at school with this kind of notion of the dark ages. And um, I would like an inoculation if that's what. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Go for it. I guess um, for what, you know, and I'm, this is an educated audience. So, you know, who was interested in the medieval period. So I think that um, everyone listening would probably know this, but it bears repeating um, that the dark ages only refers to the early medieval period. Um, and when we began using the term dark ages, you know, historians, we don't mean dark as in a pejorative. We don't mean dark as in bad. We mean dark as in occluded. We mean dark as in there's not a whole lot of sources. We mean dark as like, okay, well, we, here's the sword. Uh, what do you think we were doing? You know, we have to do a lot more work in order to illuminate what was happening. So hang on, you're not, it wasn't just because it was cloudy all the time. I know, <laughs> I know. And, you know, the problem with uh, the kind of conception of the Dark Ages that people have a lot of time is, in the first place, they think that the Dark Ages means the medieval period writ large. Um, and in the second place, they think that it means bad time. Um, and so, you know, you'll see things like, you know, um, uh, you know, for my sins, I am on Twitter. And I did um, kind of like have to get into it with an individual this week who was uh, trying to refer to the 17th century as the Dark Ages the other day. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, um, some stuff happened that she didn't like. And therefore it was the dark ages. And I'm like, honey, that's not even the medieval period. Like, you know, pull yourself together. So, you know, it's uh, it's one of these things where people will use it in this offhand way to mean like, oh, bad time. And it's like, babe, all those modern things that you're, those things that you're complaining about that you don't like are modern. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of like really sophisticated, interesting things happening in the um, early medieval period. And it's actually, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. It's not what I study by any means of the imagination because I'm very lazy. And I don't want to do um, all the work that my fine colleagues I've always do. Said martial arts are for lazy people. Yeah. You know, if I wanted yeah. to actually like work hard, I, yeah. I would go and do boxing or something. Oh, but, God. Yeah. You know, just poke them with a sword. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a great, you know, step in the right direction, I think. And, uh, you know, um, I get really interested when you see things. So, for example, um, when you'll have uh, tales of particular kings, so, you know, the French king uh, Clovis, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have these great stories about how oh, everyone is, is supposed to be lining up for a military inspection and someone comes in and his armor is all rusty. And then so uh, and he took a vase that Clovis wanted. So Clovis like cuts his head off with an axe. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> great. Wow. Okay. Interesting. You know, so, but it, what that does show you is that there, there are kind of like things like, you know, military inspections that there's this idea that, you know, you're supposed to keep your armor up to a certain standard. You're supposed to uh, keep your weapons up to a particular degree. And it tells us, you know, you get these little clues about what it is that people are kind of expecting. Sure. Um, And, you know, all of this is actually, you know, evidence of this really rich world that has a whole ton of stuff going on. But, you know, fundamentally, man, it was just a really long time ago, the early medieval period. You know, it's like over a thousand years ago. And so, yeah, you've got to expect, you know, along the way, we lost some books. We lost some things that were written down because, you know, where where are you going to keep it? Like, what's the building that, you know, has been going since, you know, 476 that we're going to keep all of these texts in? Explain that to me. You know, there's a a lot of things that happen and especially with something like martial arts where it's a very live thing you know in the medieval period it's very much um, about the way that society is organized it's very much about the way particular groups of people um, orient themselves in the world that's something that's happening constantly so you know you might not need a manual like that when you've got an actual teacher standing in your yard you know uh, that sort of thing so you know, we, unfortunately, you know, it's to our detriment that we don't know anything about this time. It's not that this time was bad so that we don't know anything about it. When we began using the term dark ages, what we meant was that this is a lament. This is a, uh, you know, what we could have had if we knew more about it, not, oh, well, that time period was awful. I guess that we could all just skip (laughs) over it. You know, we'll just fast forward this bit, you know, and Unfortunately, because of the fact that, you know, we don't teach medieval history, um, because we do have a kind of fetishization of um, the Roman Empire for all sorts of, you know, colonial and imperial reasons, it has allowed us once again to pat ourselves on the back about the people that we are better than and say, oh, well, you know, you don't need to know about those dark ages when everyone was, you know, being stupid and not being good like Roman centurions, you know. Yeah, I I should introduce you to some Smith friends of mine who uh, reproduce, like, migration era swords oh my god and with with modern forges and heat control technology and you know access to steels of a purity undreamt of mm. right they they struggle deeply mm-hmm. to come close to the level of execution that some of these blades have yeah it's a, you know these are people with immense skill you know undreamt right. of in our time yeah. and It just, it bothers me so much to see, you know, over a millennium of humanity just written off as, you know, stupid. Not worth right. your time, and, and and then patting yourself uh, on the back and saying, "But I'm not like them. I'm very smart." You know, it's like how can you how can you possibly say that there's a thousand years worth of people that um you're better than? It just doesn't make any sense, you know. When, yeah. and you know, to a certain extent, although you know, like yourself, um, you know, I'm doing much more early modern, uh, like a late medieval kind of early modern work. Um, you know, I think that there's absolutely no reason for us to speak about people who are doing immensely complicated things under conditions that. You you know, we could never deal with either. You know, I, I'm not trying to be 
living on a two field system uh, without the heavy plow, get enough food, you know, going and make the sword. Are you joking? Like, you know, there's all these obstacles in their way and yet they're able to create these amazing things. And it just bothers me so much when we denigrate them, you know? Well, yeah, I, I, there's one, there's one reason why I don't do sort of ninth, 10th, 11th century martial arts mm. and got no sources. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? So I, I just, I just go where the books are. Exactly. Um, you know. And so that's, that to me, that's the only reason. Yeah, I mean uh, that that's uh, you know my approach to history. The reason why I'm a late medievalist is yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's just it's simply easier. You know, there are just many more documents. Uh, they survive in much higher numbers. Um, you know, there are things sometimes. You know, I say, oh, I should have been a Carolingianist just because uh, Carolingian minuscule is really easy to read as a text. <laughs> you know, and that's, I, not, you know, that's not a bad reason to take up a period. Actually, yeah. being able to read the sources really does help. I gotta say, every time I'm I'm struggling over yet another. Batard script. I'm just like, my God, I wasn't like, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, there, is, there are a lot of, uh, wonderful things that you get just from being able to have the sources. And, you know, um, I am not afraid to admit that I'm simply lazy and, <laughs> and I don't want to dig around that hard for sources. Thank you very much. You know? So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now the word medieval is often used sort of pejoratively as in, you know, get medieval on him. Mm. Um, and I know that you have feelings about this. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm also aware that, that many of my uh, listeners may not have, you know, we have sort of overlapping um, fields of influence. I think there's a whole bunch of people who uh, do the sword stuff and do the medieval stuff, but don't really do the medieval history stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here is so that, um, they could be exposed to this in other kind of huge area of um, expertise and and places to go for information and that sort of thing. So, what what's what's wrong with the word medieval? So, the word medieval in the first place, um, a lot of people don't even kind of take the time to understand what it means. So, medieval and um, literally means uh, the between times, right? right? So, what it's saying is that it's in between the ancient world and our own. Um, and in and of itself, I think that that term is, uh, problematic because it kind of like indicates, you know, when, when you say that a lot of the time, um, the modern world, you know, uh, looks more like the medieval world than you, you would think, you know, um, in the sixth, 17th century, for example, you know, there's, a, there are a lot of things where there's huge overlap. Um, and I also think that one of the problems with it is, is that it really keeps the sort of medieval world at arm's length. It, it says, okay, well, we're done with that now. Um, and, you know, I kind of even really struggle, you know, it, it's easy to say when the medieval period starts, we all say, oh, 476, when Rome falls. Um, but even that's problematic, because, you know, if you asked people who were living in 476, you know, they don't look out their window and say, oh, it's a whole new time now, uh, everything right. has changed, oh, like, this is different, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, you know, sure, maybe a government is kind of like run out of a different city. It's no longer in Rome, but does that necessarily mean everything has changed? Or, you know, if you talk to people, for example, in Constantinople, they'll be the first to tell you that they're the Eastern Roman Empire and that absolutely nothing has fallen and they're confused about what you're talking about. Yeah. Same thing at the end. They're still using the same 
I mean, the, the Cistertius was used for like another, what, 500 years, was it, as a store of value and kind of a, a way of indicating value? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, if you go over to uh, Constantinople and you see things like, you know, the Nika riots that happen, you know, because everyone was so deeply into chariot racing, you know, you would be um, incredibly pressed. Uh, the Nika riots are a series of riots which happen um, because some members of a particular chariot team were sentenced to death. It's very complicated. Go look it up. You're going to love it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you so know, can, you, can you just spell that for us then? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so it's N-I-K-I-A, riots. Um, it means victory uh, in Greek. And it's something that people used to shout at chariot bases. Right. Um, and so, you know, Constantinople has enough people um, that it's still like running huge chariot races. Uh, it's still got like, you know, riots where thousands of people can be killed. You know, for all intents and purposes, you go there. The, it's very clear that the Roman Empire hasn't fallen, you know, and that uh, t- time doesn't work like that. Right. Same thing with the end of the medieval period. I don't even know what that means. You know, um, so certain people call it different times. So, no, you can say 1492. That's a a useful date, you know, the beginning of the Columbian exchange is one thing that you can do say, okay, well here it's a new time. Um, I often say, um, 1519. So, you know, uh, Martin Luther. Um, but also I think that that's a really difficult one because, you know, as someone who does a lot of work, um, on Czech history, you know, the Hussites had already done it, you know, they'd already made a form of Protestantism. They have a whole kingdom going on the Hussite religion. It's Which is that, conveniently forgotten by... Yeah, yeah. No one wants to learn Czech uh, no. is what that comes down to. So again, you know, historians being lazy, um, we just kind of skip over that because, it's, oh, all the documents are in Czech. Ooh, never mind. You know, let's wait till it's in German. And then when Germans do it, it's like, oh, oh, yes, great, fantastic. You know, yeah, here you go, here you go. You know, um, so it's, it's difficult to say um, is... You know, when when does the medieval period end? You know, we just kind of have a general vibe where things are sure. things are um and it varies from place to place, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in, in England, I mean Battle of Tewkesbury is sort of considered the last properly medieval battle. Uh, that's what I was told once. That's like 1473, I think, something like that. Yeah, and I think that that's um, you know, that's a perfectly good uh way of doing it. You know, it you know, you could do it. You and you, you know, couldn't say that in Finland. No. And, and, and the culture didn't really change much until the 17th century. So you, maybe you'd put it in Finland at like maybe 1650 as a kind of ballpark figure. Exactly. So, you know, every single place you go, and, you know, again, this is one of the reasons why history and medieval history is so complicated, is that all the cultures are so different that it's simply the same things aren't true everywhere. Um, and so one of the problems that happens, you know, with this complicated thing, with the fact that they're, you know, all the edges are blurry, you know, time periods are something that historians have made up to make our lives easier. It's, a, it's right. an easy shorthand, you know, to yeah. say, oh, I'm a medieval historian. And everyone goes, gah, gotcha. I kind of understand what that is. Yeah. That's, that's knights and horses and, and, yeah. and peasants. Exactly. Right. And then, and I'm like, that's, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's, it's, that's really easy and useful for me. Um, and but the problem with it becomes when you want more definitive answers. And the problem becomes when, again, you know, we've got this kind of post-enlightenment idea of the way that we tend to think of the medieval period is, again, shorthand for bad. Oh, that's a pejorative. So people will say, oh, well, something's so medieval when, you know, it's particularly violent, um, which is, I'm sure, this much drive you up a wall as someone who works on martial arts, because it's like, well, yeah. you know. Of course, like, you know, things are violent, but, you know, as opposed to what, as opposed to now, I would no, argue- as opposed to crucifying slaves who rebel. 
Oh, yeah, which was, you know, perfectly fine and very civilized because, you know, everybody loved that, you know, or as opposed to, you know, if we look at, you know, look at the body count of wars that we have now and it's much higher, you know, we have a a lot more actual kind of innocent bystander deaths, you know, now than we, 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 yeah, I would say, you know, of course, oh, wait, no, there's knock-ons, you know, I'm not saying that like every time a field gets burnt down, you know, a bunch of people are going to starve to death, but look at the body count of World War II, you know. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. When you say now, if you mean World War II, then, then. Sure, I'm with you. If you say now, as in 2020, then oh no, no, no. But no, you know, also I'm a, also a historian, so I'm like World War II just happened. Sorry, so <laughs> 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 it's, it's it's still on TV. Um, so you know, these things, you know, um, in the modern era, can actually be argued as being like much more violent, uh, much more terrible. Every every time someone gives me an example of something that you know I will agree is bad about the medieval period, so for example, like uh, rampant anti-Semitism in the medieval period that. Uh, the, you know, leads to things like uh, pogroms where communities of Jewish people are uh, killed. That's awful. So is the Holocaust, you know, yeah. and, uh, which we it's just... It's like we forgot how to be horrible. Yeah, exactly. You know, and a lot of times we're just being horrible more efficiently, you know, and so um, there will be this kind of, um, you know, abhorrence of medieval violence because it is a lot more sort of person on person, like one person looking another one in the eyes and sticking them with something pointy, you know, um, as opposed to sort of like, oh, well, it's all, it's kind of all happening over there. There was a bomb, you know, that sort of thing. So actually, the way that we kind of organize the violence in our world now, a lot of times it's a lot more deadly. Um, it's a lot more, um, you know, it can be a lot more wide ranging. But we just accept that because it's kind of like the air we breathe. You know, we're saying, oh, well, that's fine. And what's bad is man on horse with a sword, right? Um, you know, because it, it, it isn't that it isn't scary. And I'm not saying that, you know, medieval society wasn't violent. But I mean, it's according to whom and compared to what, you know, I don't think that we've got to a point in time where we're in a nonviolent society. So, you know, let's not go throwing medieval people off of, you know, off a bridge because, you know, we don't want to think about what it is that we're doing. And this is the problem with, you know, medieval as pejorative is that you see it consistently used anytime something happens that people don't like. I see it over and over again, you know, uh, people will refer to, for example, you know, whatever Donald Trump has done now. I don't um, and people will say, oh, well, this attitude is so medieval. And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, this is the most modern thing I've ever seen. What are you talking about? You know? Um, and, peop- and I think that it's actually really dangerous when we um, use medieval uh, to describe things that we don't like, because what it does is it keeps things that we're doing at arm's length. And we say, oh, well, this isn't a reflection of us. This is a reflection of an earlier society. It's not a reflection of how things are now. Um, And it keeps us from kind of actually seeing the commonalities that we have with medieval society, of which there are many. You know, we still have a lot of things going on um, from medieval society, which are perfectly fine and great and nice. And we kind of overlook them because we say, oh, well, no, these are bad, violent people and you don't want to be associated with them. And it also gets us off the hook for our, our own problems and the only the things that we've actually done because if we say oh this is medieval then you don't have to fix it you just have to say oh this is not a reflection of who we are and you move on yeah and and here's a a a really common misconception i come across all the time is that that uh somehow in medieval times violence was a lot more um sort of unstructured and anything goes and no consequences and yeah okay we didn't have a police force but you couldn't just go around murdering people and get away with it all the time unless you actually were some somebody extremely high up in rank oh yeah yeah and absolutely a lot of the time the way even though there is no police force you know what actually happens is that you know societies and the communities are a, a lot more um 
uh, involved in making sure that violence is kind of kept in check. So, you know, you have a much more systemic ways of looking at violence within the community is that you tend to look at the community and you tend to look at it less like, okay, well, this is necessarily like a legal issue. It's more of a communal issue. And yeah, it's illegal, obviously, but that's not the problem with going around killing people. The problem with going around killing people is, you know, that's, you know, so bad that's, never, yeah, it's a bad yeah. thing to do. So, you know, you see um, various ways of, um, you know, poli- you know, policing that, where it'll be, you know, people are responsible for. Sometimes you'll see uh, things where you'll have, um, for example, uh, communities organized. So the, you'll, there'll be ten men, and you're all responsible for each other, right? So if one of you commits a crime, the other nine have to go hunt him down and be like, "Hey, get back here!" You know, <laughs> this sort of thing. So you know, you're also kind of watching each other all the time, being like, "You're not going to commit. You're not going to hurt anyone, are you?" Because if you do, then I have to, you know. And there's there are all these like really great and interesting ways of uh, that the medieval people, um, you know, related to violence and related to each other and related to their communities. It's not like a random chaotic sea of violence, actually. It's a community where, you know, certainly violent stuff did happen, but, you know, violent stuff's happening now. So, you know, what, what do we mean by that? Excellent. Um, now, you do have a book coming out called A Short Graphic Guide to the Medieval Period. I do. Um, um, now, graphic can mean many things. So <laughs> would, you, would you care to tell yes. us something about the book? Yeah, so um, it is not, you know, um, a comic book or graphic novel, but it's in that vein of things. So um, essentially, you know, it's it's just a, a cheeky run through of the medieval period for people who are interested in kind of getting the uh, basic building blocks of it. Um, and it's got fabulous art is uh, what it comes down to. So it's part of the Icon Graphic Guide series, um, which oftentimes is uh, more aimed at kind of like um, philosophical conceptions and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll have a graphic guide to Buddhism or um, a graphic guide to uh, Foucault are things that exist. So, but I, I got to do the medieval period, which is great. Um, so it is one of these things where I think um, if you're interested in getting a kind of more comprehensive overview of medieval history, but you don't want to commit too much time, I'm, I won't be offended. Um, <laughs> here, this is a, it's a nice um, introduction. So it's about 176 pages um, with, you know, as I say, gorgeous pictures. So it allows um, a kind of, good overview it'll get a solid place to start it's got a really comprehensive reading list as well so well, I, was, I was gonna say the bibliography might be yes the bibliography is a is a good uh, place to go but if what you want to say is you know oh, here's this gap in my knowledge because again it's a gap in most of our knowledge because of the way that we relate to medieval history um it's a really good starting point so it's aimed at an adult audience um you know so uh it will be out uh early 2021 um, mm-hmm. I'm just my uh, illustrator, who's so incredibly talented, uh, is still working on it, um, and, which is a joy for me because I get to see his updates. Um, but I'm really excited for everyone else to see it. Um, and if you are interested in kind of broadening your knowledge, but don't want to dive right into, you know, a full book, um, then I think this is a great way of doing it. Excellent. And so when it, when it comes out, be sure to drop me a line and I will let everybody know. Oh, thanks so much, guys. Or, or, may, or maybe maybe we'll get you back on here to tell us all oh, about yes, it. Oh, yes, please. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Um, okay, now I have a, a, a couple of questions to sort of wrap up with. Mm-hmm. Um, my first, and I ask these of pretty much everyone because we always get some interesting answers. What is the best idea you've never acted on? Oh, God, um, <laughs> that's a, that's such a, a good question. Um, I suppose that I have so many, you know, as someone who um, uh, is an academic, but there is a, a group um, of my friends and I um, – want to well my friend and i wanted to do um another 
we were thinking about having it as a graphic guide, but we don't know how we do it now. And we're, cur- we're currently kind of like wondering if we can do it as a zine. My friend and I want to do um, a guide to a medieval art history, teaching people how to read art in the medieval oh, period. Yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. Do it. Right <laughs> yeah. So, you know, because, you know, there's a whole vernacular and a whole language yeah, that, that is present in medieval art um, that, you know, people Which are actually- super helpful for like interpreting how- Exactly. You know, books might actually be trying to represent information and yes. Mm-hmm. And it, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's so funny, you know, as a medieval historian, obviously, you know, I spend all day hanging out with these things and I know about like what I can look at a painting and say, oh, this is that saint. Um, he's doing this. Okay. Well, we're indicating here that this person is higher than that person. Okay. Well, obviously this has been done at this time because of the way the art looks. And, you know, I just know that because of years and years and years and years and years of work. But people who don't have the benefit of, you know, over a decade worth of research, oftentimes, you know, there's a whole medium, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole uh, thing that they're missing here because people, we've sort of lost that ability to read pictures. So what I want to do, uh, my uh, friend, uh, Dr. Sarah Obergstradl and I want to somehow get a, something out in the world where it's just a, a quick guide of how to read paintings. Um, That's so a great idea. We're struggling it's, with we, that. We still know how to read paintings but we or pictures but we we know how to read like 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 uh, a meme mm-hmm. yeah okay? exactly like when, when my children show me a meme um very often they have to explain what it means because <laughs> i'm missing all of the context yeah um, but then i show them a meme from like 10 years ago and they don't know what it is because they don't know the context either yeah but once, once you explain the context, oh, that's really funny. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And right? it's one of these things too, where um, I've, I always argue that one of the reasons why, uh, for some reason, the, the place where medieval history historians are popular is like um, online. We get a lot of love, and I think it's because medieval people are meme masters. You know, like medieval people right. are memeing all over the shop, and so because we spend a bunch of time looking at what medieval people do, we understand how to bring medieval things into meme culture. Um, and so, yeah, I think that. This, that's kind of like the hook that'll, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure out how to do it, but I just have to figure out how I'm going to do okay. it. So, but we're, we're going to get there. And I think that once um, everyone can kind of like come along on the journey of like understanding what it is that medieval people mean when they, they draw something, then, you know, it's going to elucid, it'll illuminate a lot for people. So, so you're going to have to come back on a third time then. Yeah, obviously <laughs> it's, it's never ending at this point. Excellent. Um, okay. Now my last question um, somebody gives you a million pounds to spend improving medieval history studies worldwide. What do you do with the money? Oh my God. Imagine. Um, I think that one of the things that I would do with it is that I would kind of have bursaries for people who were interested and needed to do kind of more immersive work. Um, one of the big things that I would love to do is kind of like more outreach with regular people. Um, I'm, I'm a big, big believer in um, actually just talking to the wider public and not a bunch of academics. You know, there's no, I think there's no real point in doing history if you're talking to the same seven people all together. So, you know, what I would love to do is, you know, something where you could have kind of like more, um, uh, you know, adult learning classes, for example, mm-hmm. pay people to say, okay, well, you know, one night a week, come learn about X about the medieval period and, you know, have that, you know, pay, be that something that people could come to, but the teacher is paid, but they don't have to pay. They could just, you know, kind of come hang out. That would be great. Um, and I I'm guess- I'm all in favor of paying teachers. Yeah. But yeah. Let's <laughs> pay teachers, baby. I, unfortunately, they're not paid enough. It's kind of really I shocking. Know. I know. Um, and I think that I would like to see also more digitized manuscripts. Oh, uh, yes. You're talking about I, language now. 
Yeah, if we could digitize a bunch of manuscripts just so that they are something that we can all access online. Oh my God. Like every time I find out that a manuscript is digitized, it's like, you know, an angel gets its wings. That's you know, right. um, it, because, you know, not having to get on a plane, not having to get on a train to go somewhere to have a look at something, you know, and granted, there are still times when you do actually need you to go see it. That, yeah. uh, but, you know, a lot of initial work or, you know, knowing that something, for example, is just a dead end or knowing that you can learn more from it because you could see it online first. Huge game changer. So I would just absolutely pour money into the digitization of manuscripts. And for people who don't already have it, because, you know, places like the Bibliothèque Nationale in France, they've got endless resources for this and they're doing it and they're doing a great job. But what about, you know, smaller libraries? What about, you know, the smaller collections? And it's those smaller collections that, you know, I think we could really use having online. So you must be familiar with the Wichtenauer. Yes. 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 That's, that's, yeah. Ugh. Ah. <laughs> I just I, I get so excited every time you know I see these things because I, I just really do believe that um, access is is one of the the biggest issues that we have right. in terms yeah, of. I, mean, I remember when it used to be that the only people who got to see any of these books we were working from are the ones who owned a photocopy. Oh my god! Yes, and yeah. there was a shitty photocopy at that. Yeah, and you can't read it because it's been like a photocopy that's gone through four right. different times. And yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes, and that and that was that was the best we had. Mm-hmm. And we were grateful we had even that. And now you can get like 800 DPI scans and you can you can see the pores in the skin uh, in the vellum. You know, being able to kind of zoom in, um, oh, you yeah. know, when you can't when you can't figure out what that word says and just being able to kind of zoom in and out until you, ah, oh, I love it. And you can yeah. see where the ink's been scraped away and a line has been redrawn. I just, you know, if we yeah. could have more of it, I would just, you know, yeah. So I would say um, adult education courses that people can just come to and I want those manuscripts online. That's where the money's going. <laughs> Excellent choice. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much. Anna. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Guy. It's just such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Eleanor Yanaga. And remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. If you've enjoyed the show, as I hope you have, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and consider wiggling along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and supporting the show. Thanks this week. Go to new patrons who have chosen to remain anonymous. But I know who you are and I am very grateful. And I should mention that patrons have the opportunity to suggest questions for future guests. So I let them know who I'm about to interview and they tell me what they want to know. So if that sounds like your sort of thing, uh, the address is patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Tony Wolf, author, Bartitsu exponent, fighting style designer on Lord of the Rings, where we answer the thorniest of thorny problems. Can an orc bench press a motorcycle? If you want to know the answer to that question, you're going to have to tune in next week. I will see you then.